The first thought was to drop out. If I did, how different my life would be today. Welcome to the official Run to Remember Memorial Marathon podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Fairs. Can you believe we're just one month away from race day? We're officially into spring now, so let's take advantage of the longer days and warmer weather to make the most of our training. Need some inspiration? Stay tuned. This week's show features the third of our running legends. You heard from Bill Rogers and Joan Benoit Samuelson in previous episodes. And this week, we hear from Dick Beardsley, who shares his incredible story of perseverance. You'll also learn the significant role the OKC Memorial Marathon played in his life. Plus, we had the chance to sit down with Kelly Masters. She's a runner and an NFL agent who's recognized as one of the most influential women in sports business. Amy Stevens joins us to discuss Heritage Hills and Mesta Park. And you asked to hear from someone like you, someone who just decided to run to remember this year. So you'll meet Yvette Trachtenberg. She's a businesswoman, mom, and a runner. And she talks about why she decided to run a marathon. The official Run to Remember Memorial Marathon podcast is sponsored and produced by Knox Studios, a creative studio and production partner for the modern media age. The Oklahoma City Memorial Marathon takes place the weekend of April 22nd through the 24th. Hurry and sign up now before the price increases on April 1st. Plus, register before the 1st and you'll get your name on the lead car sponsored by 24 Oklahoma Chevrolet dealers. Visit OKCMarathon.com today to sign up. Here to kick off the show is Marathon Race Director, Carrie Watkins. We are here with Yvette Trachtenberg, a female runner going to run the Memorial Marathon this year and with Kristen Ferris, our podcast host. Thanks for being with us, ladies. Thank you for having me. So Yvette, you represent kind of our core demographics. 60% of our runners are female ages between 40 and 55. What made you want to run the Oklahoma City Memorial Marathon? Well, first, I was very surprised with that statistic. I was like, wow, I really slipped in there with a great amount of people. <laughs> I mean, it's a heavy female-dominated race. Yeah, well, that's great. I mean, and the 40 to 55 years of age. Right. You know, we're getting better as we get older. That's right. right. Yeah. Like fine wine. That's right. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I mean, mostly I run this race because I enjoy being a part of the community that really shows up for the victims, their families, the first responders, and all the volunteers that have been through all this tragedy. And it's you're just a part of something that's bigger than yourself. So you know, it really makes me proud to be able to be here for that. How many times have you run it? Well, I've never run a marathon, so I hope that I can make it. Okay. And but I've, you've run the half. I've run the half numerous times. Oh, so that's what I'm doing this year. I know. I've run the half several times, running the full. My goal is to finish. My goal is to finish as well. And My sec- goal is to watch you both finish. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and secondary goal is to have fun. Right. Yep. Right. Well, so I'm not sure what's going to happen the day of the race. Like, I'll either come and I'll be competitive with myself or I'll come and I'll be like, okay, you have to finish, so have fun. Right. Enjoy the run. I, I don't know which event will show up. So it will happen <laughs> that day. So we'll find out Sunday morning. End. Okay. No, we'll find out oh, when, the it, end. when it's over. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So what motivates you to run daily? My dad is my motivator. He died of pancreatic cancer in 2007. So my story you know, is similar to so many people who have lost someone that they love and like this race. You know what it stands for. My family and I were looking for something to fill our void, to give back to pancreatic cancer. And we 
signed up for a race in Colorado in 2011, and it was to benefit pancreatic cancer. None of us had ran a race of what was a 10K. So for us, that was like a marathon. And we trained. We started with a running group there, which I totally recommend. If you have never ran a race, that you should do that Mm -hmm. because they give you tons of advice. What does your training look like for this race? (laughs) This race has been a little different. I've been running indoors, not outdoors. And I would prefer to be outdoors. It's a lot easier. It's more beautiful. I think the runs go faster. But there hasn't, you know, we had that ice. And it took a long time to melt. And I didn't want to risk getting injured. So, and I get up early. I get up really early and Mm -hmm. it's dark and I run alone. So I don't like to do that either. So I've been an indoor runner. I'm a Peloton girl. Oh, me too. Oh, really? Yeah. We got to share your names later. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's do that. Because mine's secret. (laughs) I don't know why. I have a bike, but I don't have a tread. So I have the app and I'm looking at nothing. So these long runs are literally me in the wall. Right. So it's, they're difficult. It's been very difficult to try. So you're a competitive hiker and skier, runner. How, how does all your mountain work prepare you for your running regimen? I think it's a great help to me as far as my endurance. I mean, first of all, I'm in high altitudes. And then I come back here and there's no altitudes. So my heart is always pumping. And my days in the mountains are long days. I go like all day. So for me, coming back to flatland, it's a big change. So... My mountaineering, whatever you call it, helps a ton. I could definitely see mm-hmm. where hiking would be good training. And what like are you it. doing for like cross training or what else are you doing besides running? I definitely cross train. I think that's so important because I get so bored. Uh-huh. And so I'll do the bike and then I do ski. Uh-huh. And boot camps are good. Weight training is good. I, I do a lot, but you have to run a lot. You have to run a lot. I know. Yeah. How do you stay motivated to run a lot? I just think of the end game, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know what I have to do, and I know what I have to do to get there. Yeah. So what's your favorite part of the Memorial Marathon? It's going to be the finish line, because I hope to see it. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> you will. <laughs> but it's not It's not my favorite part of it. It's a, definitely the starting line, because I'm standing there, and with all the runners, I'm a nervous wreck. Am I going to finish? How many porta potties are you set up? I, I pretty much stop every mile too. It's so sad. My <laughs> cuts my time so much. But then you have the 168 seconds of silence, and I'm not very emotional, but I become like a weeping willow. I just, mm-hmm. you know, you can't help it when you're thinking of what's going on in those seconds. And for me, I've heard in your previous podcast that. That's a long time, but for me, it goes so fast because I start to think about the victims. I start to think about why I'm there, and then all of a sudden, we have to go. I'm like, wait, I just started to get emotional. Mm -hmm. What's the hardest part of the memorial course? So listening to all these podcasts, I've heard of the Gorilla Hill and Classen, but for me, I don't mind those. I don't mind hills. I don't mind distance. I, I just get in my head. I don't have a hard part. I just have a mental hard part. So I just have to remember to stay focused on why I'm there and know that, you know, that there's a bigger picture. So really, it's about mental fortitude. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's exactly right. Yeah. Staying strong. What's the favorite part of the course? My favorite part of the course is the crowds. 
I love when I see little kids out there who have made signs and they have them like out there, like one kid had these buttons that they push for energy and uh-huh. you go and you push them and they they light up, you light up and then you, you really have energy. It, it cool. does give you energy. And that's like so sweet that they're out there and they're doing that for you and you're giving back to them. And um, also the runners, like your fellow runners or like your instant friends, you look and you've got maybe two or three people, you're running the same pace all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. So you've, you've killed about two or three miles and you know you're just there for each other. Right. So that's just an instant bond that you've created. What tips or tricks do you have to help get you to the finish line? Um, you have a bag of tricks you carry with no, you? No, I've been trying to gain some. I've been trying to, like, take notes for, have you been doing that too? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Definitely. Because I've kind never of have done like, this. Yeah, things I'm going to have to just, Kristen's like, trying, you're trying food and... Yeah. Energy bars and stuff. Yeah, now, we've right? been, you know, this week after our long run, my daughter's running coach reached out to us just to kind of see how our run was. And she said, you have to think of every long run as a dress rehearsal. Mm-hmm. And I loved that. I was yeah. like, that's that's perfect. You know, you've got to try your food. You've got to try your clothes because, you know, something might feel funny. It feels fine for like four miles, but then it doesn't feel good after 20 miles. So, you know, just- Good advice. Right, like just all those. And I was like, that's such good advice that I just do need to be kind of trying all these things and just remembering all these things that I've heard along the way. I've been trying to soak it all up and listening to these podcasts because Uh I have not done this kind of distance. And for me, the half marathon has become so doable since I run so much. You don't even really train for that. No, because I, once you run about, eight plus miles, right. you can do the half. Right. So what made you decide to to take the plunge this year and run the full? Well, I was going to run a years ago, and then we had the COVID incident. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's I've just been putting off. I was going to do it when I turned 50. Uh-huh. I was going to do it before I turned 50, but then I was for sure going to do it when I turned 50. We're not going to talk about, like, what year that was, Carrie. Uh, when that was. <laughs> Carrie. It was very recent. Right. So. It was recent. But then— you know, I really need to do it so that I know I can do it. What nutrition tips do you have? Well, I think it's very important to try nutrition before you do this race or any race because I have a touchy stomach. So I'm a bland girl. I can only have water, apples, and bananas. Like, that's it. No gummies for me. No. No goo. No what did they say? They had mashed potatoes. No, sports Potato buds. buds. Yeah, uh-huh. no buds. buds. Have we tried them? No, but it sounds delish. We bought some, but yeah. I have, I've been a little bit leery to try them. I think it we sounds will. amazing. We will before, before race day. We'll give them a try. You'll have to report back. I will report back. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I would like to try them, but I'll do it after the marathon. Yeah. <laughs> because I can't. You'll have them for dinner one night. That sounds so good, though. <laughs> but I mean, I, I can't do it. I've tried everything. So I have to say bland, but you... Definitely need to make sure your nutrition stuff has been test, tried, tasted, you know, all of it before. No first on race day. No, maybe yeah. no seconds. I mean, I would right. do it a few times. Right. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. Well, um, rumor has it, the last time you ran the marathon, you bought a bed at the expo. Is that true? I'm cracking up with that question because it's so true. And you still have it? Yeah. I love, love the marathon expo. It's so much fun. When I went, well, I mean, you go. Anyway, but I went, I was going to look at all the new trends and race stuff. And all of a sudden, I'm like, 
wow, look at this mattress. This is the best mattress ever. It's one of those custom, soft, hard, up, down, uh-huh. everything. I tell my husband we're buying a mattress, and he's just like, aren't you at the race expo? <laughs> <laughs> like, I am. And yes, I have it. I'll probably have it forever. Can you believe that? No, I mean— Have you ever met anyone who bought a mattress at a race expo? I, I have not. Well, you I, have now. I yeah. have now. Yeah, so keep your eyes I, open. I, I couldn't believe witnessing it. I couldn't believe it because— this was a great vendor. They took forever to get installed and to get their booth set up. We were pushing it on time to open the doors. Uh-huh. I'm like, who's going to buy a mattress? And lo and behold, that's me. One of my good friends who buys a mattress. <laughs> Did they sell more than one? Oh, hundreds. They really? They sold a bunch. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of people there. How fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I just wondered <laughs> so if you that's still funny had you it. Brought, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Never will forget it. New. That's a first. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> What's your message for? People who are listening but haven't signed up and, you know, is it too late to get involved? Is there somewhere they can come and run? I mean, you don't even have to run to be a part of the Oklahoma City Memorial Marathon. There's a place for you. I mean, there's a way to be involved for every single person. Or you could be the volunteer on the sidelines during the run and just cheer people on. So I would just say, if you've never come down for this marathon, you should just try to come down in some sort or some fashion this year and see what the talk is all about. Because once you do it once, you come back every single year. That's a great point. Go to okcmarathon.com. You can sign up to run or volunteer or any of the activities of the weekend are all online and jump in and come down and be a part of it. So thanks for running and we look forward to seeing you at the finish line. Okay, sounds good. Thanks for having me. For this week's training segment, we conclude our Legends of Running series with Dick Beardsley. He's perhaps best known for the 1982 Boston Marathon, where he ran neck and neck with Alberto Salazar over the final nine miles in what's been called the Duel in the Sun. But there's much more to Dick's story, and we're glad to have him join us today along with race director Carrie Watkins. Dick, thank you for being here. Well, thanks, guys, Kristen and Carrie, for having me on. I'm excited to be part of your podcast. Good. So good. glad to have you. We thank are. You. Let's just start at the beginning. When, when did you get into running? Well, I started when I was a junior in high school, so I was 17 years old, and I really wasn't into athletics or any sports like that at the time, but I noticed that a lot of my friends that were good in sports would wear their high school letter jackets around school, and they always had girls hanging all over them, so I thought, well, gosh, all I got to do is earn myself a letter jacket, and the girls will come to me. So I went out for the football team, and you know, I'm like, I'm six foot tall, weigh 135 pounds, soaking wet. But I got gang tackled the very first day of practice. And I remember getting up out of that pile of guys thinking, there's not a girl alive worth going through this. So I quit. And it was one of the best things that ever happened to me because I went out for the cross country team a few days later. I didn't even know what cross country running was. And um, kind of the rest is history. I wasn't very good, but I fell in love with the sport right away. Well, it's had a huge impact on your life. That's for sure. Oh, a huge impact. Absolutely. I mean, I still run to this day and I love it just as much today as I ever have. That's a good lesson for people that sometimes when a door closes, another one opens. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes what we perceive as these incredible disappointments in our lives can turn out to be incredible blessings. And that's what it was for me, for sure. Okay, let's talk about the 1982 Boston Marathon. I watched this last night on YouTube. I watched the ending of it. So anybody listening should go look it up. It's kind of fun to watch. Tell us about that race and that day. Yeah, you know, I can't remember what I had for breakfast a few hours ago, but I can still remember that race like it happened this morning. And it's hard to believe, 
in April, it'll be 40 years ago. I mean, never in my wildest dreams when I graduated from high school in 1975 did I ever think, you know, that a short seven years later, I'd be not only running the Boston Marathon, but with an opportunity to perhaps win it. You know, back then, the Boston Marathon, by tradition, started at 12 noon, which isn't the greatest time of the day to be starting a marathon. Now, thankfully, it starts in the morning. But back then, it started at noon. It was about, I don't know, 70 degrees at the start, got into the upper 70s as the race went on. And I remember standing on the front row and the starter puts up his pistol and he hollers one minute. And I remember looking to my right and a couple of guys down for me on that front line was Alberto Salazar, who was the world record holder at the time. I looked to my left and a little further down on my left in the front row was Bill Rogers, four-time winner of the Boston Marathon. And I'm looking up and down this front row, looking at all these Olympians and world-class athletes. <laughs> and I'm a very positive person, but you know, my thought at that point was, what the heck am I doing on the same start line with these guys? But before I could really let that bake into my brain, I thought, no, Dick, you've done the work. You deserve to be here. And with that, the gun went off and Salazar shot out of the starting area like he was shot from a rocket. And I was right alongside of him. And I remember we went through the first mile in four minutes and 33 seconds. Unbelievable. And I'm hanging on for dear life. And, you know, when you're hanging on for dear life and you still got 25.2 miles to go, (laughs) that's not the best feeling to have. But I figured it was just maybe the excitement of being there. And I hit mile two and I felt worse than at mile one. And then I hit mile three. And like I said just a moment ago. I'm one of the most positive people you'll ever meet. But I I felt so bad when I hit mile three. The first thought to cross my mind was to drop out. And I'm thinking how different my life would be today if I had made, you know, up some cockamamie excuse that everybody would have believed. I'm almost certain I wouldn't be talking to you today. I probably would have never been invited to the Oklahoma City Memorial Marathon. And it's those moments that all of us face, some of us more than others, that when we don't think we can take that next step yet, somehow we do. And so I I thought, no, Dick, you can't drop out. And I hit the fourth mile and I didn't feel any better, but I had a smile on my face because I didn't feel any worse. And that was a huge confidence builder for me. And then by mile five, I I, kind of started getting into a rhythm. And then as the race went along, you know, there was an estimated one and a half million spectators out on the course that day. So it was, and there was no fencing like there is now. And uh, that lead group that I was in, it kept getting smaller and smaller until we got to the 17 mile point when it was down to just two of us. Salazar, the world record holder. And as the Boston Marathon or the Boston Globe newspaper had dubbed me the day before, Dick Beardsley, the country bumpkin from Minnesota. So nobody had given me, or for that matter, anyone else, much of a chance against Alberto. And I mean, it turned into a battle and I tried everything I could to, um, you know, to try to get away from him. Finally, I I opened up a little bit of a gap with about 900 meters to go. And then I I thought I got to dig even deeper to try to open that gap up even more. And when I did, I got this unbelievable Charlie horse in my right hamstring. And back then there were no aid stations on the course. You just got water if if you could find any from spectators. And I remember it sent me up in the air 
and Alberto went flying by me like I was standing still. But luckily, I, I was still able to keep moving, but just very slowly. And Alberto, at one point, got almost a 100-meter lead. And then I my right foot came down into a pothole I didn't see, and I stumbled and almost fell down. But what, it, what happened when I almost fell, it jerked my leg, and it popped the knot out, so I got my stride back, and I caught back up to him at the top of uh, Hereford Street on the last left turn to the finish line and with about 150 meters to go. And then basically it came down to a 100-meter sprint. And that day we were both fortunate to have broken the American record and the Boston course record. And it was the first time in history two men had ever gone under two hours and nine minutes in the same marathon. And really remarkable. Know, Alberto, <laughs> yeah. As you know, Alberto won the race that day. I was right behind him, but he ran 208.51 and I ran... 208.52.6, which they rounded up to 208.53. So, wow. Yeah. And, you know, I look back in that race, and I remember after the race thinking, what could I have done differently where I was a, a second or two in front of him? And I retraced the the race in my mind, literally every step from Hopkinton down to the finish line in downtown Boston. And when I got done, I had a big smile on my face because I couldn't have done anything different. And, you know, at the end of the day, if you know you gave it your very, very best, how can you be disappointed in that? Yeah. That's a remarkable story. It really is. And so then you went on after that to have lots of success in running. Are there any races that stick out in particular to you other than that well, duel in the you sun? Know, a lot of them do. The one that, you know, when people ask, what is your favorite memory of a race that you ran. And a lot of people think, well, it's got to be the Boston Marathon. And believe me, that was obviously, it's right up there. But probably the the one when I was very fortunate to have won my very first grandma's marathon, which is uh, not too far from where I live in Duluth, Minnesota. And it wasn't because I was fortunate to win the race or set a course record, but it was the first time my mom and dad had ever seen me run a marathon. And they were both at the finish line and my dad, you know, who, who back then you could have hit over the head with a two by four and he wouldn't have shed a tear. My dad was crying. My mom was crying. I'm crying. And it was just a really, really neat thing to have my mom and dad there. Great moment for your family. And you see so much of that. It really is the thrill of victory and just the, the perseverance you've gone through as a runner to get to that mm -hmm. finish line. Yeah. Running has been, you know, it, it, it took me, gals, so farther than I ever even imagined that it could. The fact that I still love doing it. I mean, I still, I go to bed at night and I can hardly wait to get up in the morning to go for my run. And I'm slower than molasses in January now, but it doesn't matter to me. It's still a thrill for me. And so Dick, you've had some setbacks. It hasn't all been easy. Can you talk to us a little bit about your setbacks that you've had? Yeah. So, you know, right before the 84 Olympics in Los Angeles, well, it was about a year before, I blew out my left Achilles tendon and uh, the Olympic orthopedic surgeon at the time repaired it, built me a new one, said I couldn't run for six months and I didn't have that kind of time. And six weeks later, I was back training. And back then I could put the pain in the back of my head. And I uh, was out in California running a race out there and I snapped it again. So I, I missed out on trying to get onto the 84 Olympic team. I, I came back finally after two years of not running it at all and qualified for the 88 Olympic trials marathon and just didn't run very well at that race. And and so at age 32, which nowadays is young, I mean, these kids nowadays are running their best in their early to mid thirties, but 
I retired and I was, you know, from that elite training and running and racing. And I uh, moved back to my Minnesota dairy farm. And my whole goal then was to raise a bunch of kids and milk a bunch of cows and do my fishing guide business, still run, but just not at that high level anymore. And then on November 13th of 1989, I got in a very bad farm accident and um, almost died, almost lost my left leg twice and got all busted up and was in the hospital for a long, long time and multiple surgeries to put me back together. And But I recovered from that. And, and then about two years later, I a person ran a stop sign on a country road and totaled out my car and I broke my back and had to have surgery on my back. And then, you know, I, I recovered from that. And then I was running in Fargo, North Dakota, and I got hit from behind by a truck and back in the hospital. And I was hiking then, you know, a year later with my son, Andy, and fell off a cliff when the ground broke away and got all busted up again. Oh, my God. Wow. I, and then, and I don't blame this on what happened, but I, you know, I never did drugs or drank alcohol growing up as a kid or anything like that. And anyhow, I ended up getting addicted to the opioids and thankfully got into a treatment program and God willing, coming up on February 12th, I'll have 25 years of sobriety from the narcotics. And, but through all that and all the, the 20 some surgeries I've had to put my body back together, you know, the, the biggest challenge has been I lost my son, Andy, six years ago. Andy was in the United States Army and served in Iraq and was a gunner on Black Hawk helicopters. And when he got back from there, he suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, and six years ago, he took his life. <clears throat> so that makes all these other things that have happened to me really seem like a walk in the park compared to losing my son. And, uh, you know, I miss him every single day. But what gives me hope and brings me peace and joy is knowing that someday I'll be able to give him a big hug again. And um, yep. that's, that brings a smile to my face. Wow, Dick, I didn't I didn't know that. That's a big loss. And yeah. you, you've walked through some hard times. You know how some of the families here in Oklahoma City feel now. Oh, and that's why I, I know we're, I'm a yapper here, but I just got to say about your race, you know, I... I was there for, I don't know, the first eight, nine, 10 years or something yeah. like that. And um, what your race represents, I, I, I can't even put it into terms. And just thinking about it, it gives me shivers. When I'm standing at the memorial and looking down on that pool of water and the manicured lawn there, and, and I look at all those chairs from the people that died, and then I look at those little chairs from the little kids that died that day, but then what gives me great hope every time I've been there is when I look over into that right-hand corner and I see that big tree that survived. And it gives me and I know everybody else hope that this was a terrible thing, but we got to keep moving forward. We'll never, ever forget. But when I see that tree and and that it survived, it, it just gives hope to so many people. If you don't get shivers when you're at that memorial in Oklahoma City, nothing will give you shivers because there's nothing else like it that I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, we, we agree. Yeah, I feel like you just summed up kind of what we hope people take away from their experience at a 
Memorial Marathon is is that sense of hope and the sense of remembrance and the you know the reason why we run this race and 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 when, how yes, it's different from and, other races. Yes, and how it's different yes. from other races with that purpose. You guys, and that's the key. Is you know there's zillions of marathons all over our country and around the world, but your marathon is something special because of that. And so many people that day are running for a loved one that maybe they perhaps lost that day there, you know, back in 1995. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or they've lost another a family member to something else, but it's there. And it and that's the reason people come out there. And, and you know, you folks, and I'm not just saying this because I'm on with you. I mean, I've been fortunate to have been to a lot of races around the country and around the world, but the hospitality that you show, not just me when I'm there, but to everybody and and uh, what you provide and, and that sense of hope and bringing enjoyment to something that, you know, was a terrible thing that happened and knowing that that we can still move forward. And again, like I said, never forget. You know, Dick, you were with us in some of our hardest times. And when you come back this year, you'll see a different city, a, a rebuilt city, a city with a new convention center. We end in a beautiful new park in the center of downtown. Wow. So I'm anxious for you to be here and to see the, the change over time. But it's so symbolic, really, of our lives and how we go through the ups and downs. And you've talked about it a little bit today and how you, you know, it is similar to running and, and to endurance running and you, how you've got to stay the course. And you've done that Absolutely. personally. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm so looking forward to coming back and and to see how the city has continued to move forward again and bring new things to downtown. And so I, I can't wait to come back. I've made so many friends down there over the years, and it'll be great to reconnect with them. And I just can't tell you how excited I am. Well, you know, one thing I was going to ask you about, you're married now to a woman that you met here at the Expo, right? Yeah. Really? <laughs> my wife. It's a, it's a great story. Thing. My wife, Jill. So her, one of her best friends is Stacy Conley and her and her husband, John, used to own and race direct the Austin Marathon in Austin, Texas. Well, so when I was down at your race, I think it was maybe 2003 or 2004, something like that. So, you know, I'm at the expo and I had given a talk and then I was signing some of the Oklahoma City Memorial marathon posters for people. And then I got done with that. So I was just walking around looking at all the booths and I happened to come to the Austin marathon booth. And there was a gal standing in there holding a little golden retriever puppy. And her name was at the time, Jill Gaynor. And so we chatted a little bit, you know, and that was about it. Uh, I I think we had supper together that night that you guys put on and and Jill and Stacy were invited. So I think I sat with them. Well, then the next year I got invited down to the Austin marathon and Coincidentally. Jill, who vol- <laughs> yeah. And who Jill volunteered all the time. So Jill picked me up at the airport, got me to all my different venues I needed to be. And and then we just started kind of emailing each other. And and it wasn't long. And we started dating. Me up here and pretty near to the Canadian border of northern Minnesota and her down in Austin, Texas. And um, it worked. And we got married in, in 2007. And she moved to... Bemidji, and she's fallen in love with northern Minnesota and the town of Bemidji, and she's very involved in the community. Now, when it gets down to 35, 40 below zero, she's not a big fan of that. But That's true love. Times, yeah, it is. It really is. So, so you guys own a bed and breakfast together? and Yeah. We, and it's really, it's Jill's thing. 
You know, I mean, like I tell people, I'm her Sherpa. I, I plow the snow and shovel it in the winter. I mow the grass in the summertime. But it's beauty and success is because of Jill. Like she told me, down in Texas in the summertime, you can't grow flowers or plants because it's just too gosh dang hot. If you could see our bed and breakfast in the summertime and the amount of work and love that she has for the flowers and the plants that surround our grounds, it, it's breathtaking what she's done. So I'm very proud of her. And I think that's probably the only way I could have got her to move up here. Is <laughs> she's always had a dream of having a bed and breakfast and, and now she does. Well, it's great. We're really excited to have you guys back. and Yeah, I look forward to seeing you in April. In April, and we will uh, welcome you back with open arms and, and have you come check out Oklahoma City. It's kind of a new life here that you, you will be looking forward to see, I know. I can't wait, guys. And you know when I'm there, anything I can do to help you out, you just holler and let me know. Okay, we'll be in touch. Thank you, Dick. All uh, right, thanks, all guys. Right. Now it's time for our Why We Run segment. This week, we're talking to Kelly Masters. She's an attorney, an NFL sports agent, and an avid runner. Kelly joins me alongside race director Carrie Watkins. Kelly, thank you for being here. So happy to be here. Yes, we're glad you're here. So can you just tell us a little bit about your background and what you do? Sure. So lifelong Oklahoman, born and raised in Oklahoma City and surrounding areas. I have my law degree from OU, journalism degree from OU, law degree from OU. I practiced law for... Um, about 20 years with Feller Snyder Law Firm, and then sort of semi-retired from that. But in the meantime, the last, I guess, 16 years, I have been a certified NFL agent. So I represent athletes coming out of college, going into the NFL draft. And I launched my own company in 2006, KMM Sports. And we have now represented, I've represented players in every draft since 2006 in the NFL. And then we've added baseball. We've added some Olympians. Um, so yeah, so I have been working as an attorney, as an agent, as a manager, a publicist, any hat I need to wear, babysitter. You had some players <laughs> in the Super Bowl? I did. I had one player. We had a number of players that made it to the playoffs. And so I knew it'd end up with at least one player that actually got to play in the Super Bowl. He was with the Bengals, which I know you were We were cheering, cheering for the Bengals. We were. Zach uh, and all the Oklahoma connections there. They'll be back. They will be. They will be. And it was hard, though, talking to my player after the game. He was like, you know, we all want to be just happy that we made it to the Super Bowl, but this is really hard to, yeah. to get that close. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, I get the opportunity to work with people whose dreams are coming true and help them really maximize their opportunities and then use their platforms and their resources to make an impact, which is what I feel like my calling is. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And you are the, the first woman to <laughs> represent an NFL player, correct? Uh, first one to represent a first rounder. Okay. There were several other women that had, had kind of fallen into you know, doing contracts, whether it was uh -huh. family or working for agencies or lawyers that represented athletes. I was really the first one to launch out and get certified, start my own company, basically become, you know, the female version of Jerry Maguire. So. Right. I love that. <laughs> so, yeah. so how, I mean, so kind of 
walk me through that. You know, yeah. how did that feel? And like, what do you remember about that time? Oh and- my goodness, so many things. When I first got certified, I had no intention of being a sports agent. I had become a you know civil litigator. I was just mainly doing trial work, but also really had a heart for nonprofit organization law, working with tax-exempt organizations. And it was actually that that led me to work with my first athlete. And of all people, it was Josh Heupel, who most people remember from, you know, bringing OU back to national prominence uh-huh. in 2000. He had started a foundation and and his family needed some assistance with it just from an attorney. But through that process and kind of seeing what athletes, yeah, I obviously grew up in Oklahoma, so of course I'm a And you were an fan. athlete. I was an athlete. And you and your twin twirler. sister. Yes. <laughs> known for the pride of Oklahoma twirlers. I will never, I'll never be able to go anywhere in the state of Oklahoma and, and not be recognized as one of the twin twirlers for OU. Do you still twirl a baton? <laughs> Every once in a while. Yeah. Sometimes I, I want to pretend that I'm still athletic. <laughs> I love that. So yeah. So yeah, started working with Josh and realized that I could combine all my, everything that I was passionate about, you know, athletics, giving back, advocacy, all those things really positioned me to be a sports agent. I had no idea that was my my calling, but I found it and I have, have loved it. And this is a traditionally male-oriented field. Traditionally, and do you, yes. So do you feel like there's a shift in that? Definitely. And I'm so thankful now that women who are joining the profession that are starting to represent more athletes, we are seeing more and more women come in and they're not getting the questions that I got uh-huh. in the beginning. When I, I would walk into a meeting and the parents and the coaches and the players would even look and say, well, where's the agent? You know, you have to be his assistant or his secretary or something. I'm like, no, I really am the agent. <laughs> and maybe it's a little reminiscent of, you know, some of the women that I've looked up to in the legal profession for a long time had to face you know, blowback that I never had to because Someone they were the Someone has to crack runners. the ceiling. You did it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've even heard about that with some of the great running legends that we've talked to about how like in marathons, you know. Women weren't allowed. Women weren't allowed. Isn't that crazy to think about now? Uh It's Yeah. And when I tell my stories of, you know, being, gosh, I was at my very first NFL Combine in 2006 and I was approached by probably one of the most successful sports agents in the business ever. And he walked up to me and basically said, you're wasting your time. You're a joke. And women don't belong here. And women will never be respected or, or be successful in this business. Business. And I looked around like, what year are we in? Maybe you what? felt a little threatened. Right? <laughs> I think that's what I'm going to take it as. Yeah. Like, oh, you're, you're just going to take it as a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so you, you are obviously busy. You've travel a lot with this job, but you still have time to sit on the board of the Oklahoma City National Memorial. Why is that important to you? So yeah, I was so honored to be even asked to consider sitting on the board, the memorial. Obviously, being a lifelong Oklahoman, I remember the bombing vividly. I had friends who were impacted and who lost loved ones. I was working for Channel 9 here in Oklahoma City during that time, and so felt very, very impacted by it, always have. But then to, to actually be part of the board and being be part of the really the the great legacy of Oklahomans that grew out of such tragedy and continuing to to encourage people to learn the story and learn the history of it and, and see how Oklahoma responded and continues to respond and continues to set an example for the entire world, really, of how to respond to tragedy. Very, very meaningful. And I remember a number of years ago, I volunteered you know, just to hand out water, and I was completely hooked. Uh, I ran it the next year, the half, uh-huh. <laughs> not the full, but I absolutely 
absolutely love just what an amazing race it is, what an amazing time it is to really reflect on not only the tragedy and the Oklahomans who lost their lives, but also how you know what's happened since then and, and how that has impacted us forever. Uh-huh. Can you share a little bit more about your running? I started running in law school really as a stress reliever and to stay in shape, stay healthy. And I mean, I'll be honest, when I first started running, I thought, you know, who loves this? Right. <laughs> I would maybe go for a few blocks and have to stop and catch my breath. And I thought this is, you know, I'm never going to run a mile. I'll never be able to. It's just not in my genes. And I kept pushing myself a little bit further every day and have been running ever since. So I'm not a major distance runner. I run about about two miles a day. Uh-huh. What was your favorite part about the mm-hmm. Oklahoma City Memorial Marathon? Oh my gosh, there were so many. Obviously, I loved the, uh, I was at the starting line and I was already bawling my eyes out because of the yes. moment of silence. I know that impacts everybody. Uh, I loved just crossing the starting line initially with so many people and all really running with a purpose. And then getting to kind of run through my my hometown, just experiencing Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. You know, the people with the signs along the ways. There was one house, it, it was clearly a, a bunch of bachelors, and they had a, a station set up. Everyone else had water, Gatorade, bananas, like Gorilla Hill, but they had donut holes and fireball shots. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> I went, okay, I don't running. know if anyone is going to stop there, but it's, you know, A plus for creativity. You would be surprised. <laughs> I, I think that some runners do stop and partake in the oh. celebration along the way. I never would have made it. <laughs> no, <laughs> me neither. <laughs> no, it's tell us, uh, tell so us about your Kellyisms that we hear so much about. Oh my gosh, my players could rattle off the things that I say that I sound like a broken record saying. Um, probably the first one that comes to mind would be control what you can control. Especially with athletes, they are, you know, so much of what they do is about their discipline, what they eat, the time they spend training, the time they spend studying their playbook, watching film. And yet there are things that are completely outside of their control, you know, running and having a non-contact injury, tearing an ACL, you know, a coach wants a different player to play in their spot. There are just things that, that they can't uh, change. They can't have any control over. And I think that's true of a lot of us. We all can find ourselves spending time worrying about things that are really out of our control. And so what is it that we can do to make a difference? How can we live our best lives and not spend so much time worrying about things that, that really we have no way to change? So yeah. that's probably the main one. Yeah, that that's certainly I've learned that through the story of the bombing and the recovery. Absolutely. What's another Achilleism? Um, fight in your own armor. That's another one that I I use a lot. And it's actually based on the story of David and Goliath. Everyone always, you know, when they saw that I started my own sports agency, it truly was David and Goliath. I was competing with my small little Oklahoma City agency, and I was going up against these massive agencies based on either coast with billions of dollars behind them. And so, yeah, it was David and Goliath, but I had to remind them that David wins. (laughs) That's right. And that story, the part that I like the most, that I relate to the most, is right before David goes out to to kill Goliath, the king actually takes him aside and tries to give him his own armor. And David, it says, in the Bible, it says David puts on the king's armor and it just doesn't fit and it's not proven. He's never used it. And so he gives the armor back to the king and he picks up what he's used to, which is the slingshot. And he goes out and he, you know, walks into into destiny. And I feel like sometimes we compare ourselves and think we have to have what other people have, the resources, the experience, the knowledge, whatever. 
And uh, really, we're equipped with our own experiences and our own personalities and, and our skills and strengths that obviously we can develop over time, just like David did with practicing with the slingshot. But yeah, we don't necessarily need what other people have. We are equipped to fulfill our calling. Well, that's great advice. I know. That's great advice. You penned a book, High Impact Life, A Sports Agent's Secret to Finding and Fulfilling a Purpose You Can't Lose. Tell us a little bit about your book and where we can find it and what made you do it. Yeah. So a number of years ago, I was contacted by just someone who worked for Tyndale House Publishing. And he said, I've followed your career. It's fascinating. You know, especially the fact that you share the adversity you go through. You don't just talk about the success. You talk about the failures and how you, what you learned. And he said, if you'd ever be interested in writing a book, let me know. And I was fortunate to have had a high school English teacher that, that really instilled in me a love of reading and writing. And I credit him to this day, Coach Huggins. He was the head coach, head football coach as well as being my English teacher. At Midwest City. That's great. And I actually took a copy of the book over to him. I didn't even know it was his 80th birthday. Are you kidding? But I dedicated the book to him, yeah. and so I took it over to him. So I, he had instilled this this love of writing. Didn't actually think I'd ever write something that people would consume publicly, but the idea really intrigued me. And I didn't really want to wait until the end of my life. That's you know when most people write their memoirs. I didn't want to write a memoir. I thought, well, you know, I'd love to share some of the things that some of the Kellyisms and some of the life lessons that I've learned. And it was such a joy to get to work on. The first time I submitted the manuscript, they're like, "Gosh, this is really like you've been." through a lot. This is kind of depressing to read. (laughs) Can you make it sound more fun? And so we removed some of the really tough stuff that'll be in the next book Mm -hmm. and just made it a a book that I think people will will find very relatable. I still share a lot of the embarrassing moments and the failures and mistakes that I made along the way and then how I bounced back from those. It's very real. Thank you. And it's very, I didn't expect it to be faith-based like it was. Mm -hmm. Since I'm a person of faith, but Tyndale really encouraged me and we found inspiring stories, mostly from from the Bible that kind of go along with each chapter lesson. And so that was fun for me too. So I think there, I've heard from, you know, Sunday school teachers that are using it as a devotional. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. never expected that. You talk in the book about one of the things you speak to your athletes about is looking at the big picture. Yes. And sometimes, especially in the world we're in today, we get focused on the nitty gritty and the bad of today. But you have some good encouragement about making us all look at the big picture. You want to talk about that? I do think it's so easy to get caught up in just our day-to-day battles and even day-to-day disappointments or disagreements or adversities. I came to a point in my life where I felt like I had to look like I had this perfect life and that I had it all together and that I was successful in every area of my life. And there's so much pressure. I feel like especially on women sometimes, maybe it's just we put pressure on ourselves to look like we've got got it all together. We have all the answers. And I had to realize that, you know what, life is not about being perfect at everything. And when I finally took a step back and said, you know, I don't have to be perfect 100% of the time. I I can give myself, obviously still want to be excellent, but I can give myself some grace to learn and to grow and to realize that really every single one of us has this bigger purpose in life. Every single one of us was born with a calling, with a reason to be here, you know, to make an impact on the people around us. And maybe that's just our our family members and our friends, or maybe that's something even bigger. And when I came to sort of that moment of decision where I switched to this place of pursuing purpose and pursuing that, you know, what is the bigger picture? What is it that overall I'm I'm called to do? I realized that I just had a purpose to serve. 
And every one of us has, I think you, you dig deep and you know what is important to you. You know what you value in life. And through that sort of self-discovery, you figure out what does my overall purpose look like and what does it look like just to move towards that every day? It's just about pursuing that higher calling and that bigger purpose. Yeah, that sounds great. What advice would you give to the younger generation on just kind of, you've paved a way and you've pursued yeah. a path just on taking a step out and doing yeah. something that's hard? You know, and I feel like maybe every generation, and maybe this is just that I'm getting older, <laughs> I'm looking back and thinking, gosh, things are so different. You know, people are so different. Kids are so different. It seems like it is so easy now to just say, well, I don't like this. I'm going to quit and do something else. Whereas, you know, I stayed at the same law firm for 20 years, which is unheard of. Nobody, and I could have at, at points in time said, oh, I want to do something different. You know, I don't like this anymore. I'm bored or this is too hard or whatever and done something different. And there's so much to be said for just for perseverance. I love what one of my mentors says, and I, I actually, this is a chapter in the book too, or part of a chapter about fear, is that uh, a mentor of mine said, the opposite of fear is action, which didn't really make sense to me. I'm like, no, the opposite of fear is courage. And he said, no, think about what happens when you feel afraid, when you're challenged by something that looks too hard or seems too painful or, you know, isn't fun or, <laughs> or whatever, but it's standing in the way of your goal or where you're heading. When you're in fear, you freeze up, you lock up. But when you step out, when you make that hard phone call, when you make that tough decision, when you step out and go into that situation that feels like it's going to be overwhelming or feels like it's going to be a battle, when you take a step of action, when you take action towards that fear, you're moving towards that goal, that's when the courage comes. That's when the strength comes. The bravery comes from taking action. Uh, and I would say that to anyone who maybe wants to try to run a half marathon or, or a full marathon, take action. When I started running, it started with going a block <laughs> and, and then pushing past whatever fear was holding me back from continuing to keep moving. Um, yeah, when you're faced with fear, take action. Right. And it won't always be easy, but it'll be worth it. Absolutely. Well, everyone needs to pick up High Impact Life and read Thank it. You. you can get it on Amazon or at your local bookstores, I guess. Yep, and Barnes & Noble carries it, Amazon wherever you buy your books. Great. Right. And where else can people follow you or find out more about you? Uh, I'm on social media, although I wish I was better at it. I'm that generation that, you know, old dog, new tricks I had to learn. <laughs> but I'm on Twitter at KMM Sports and I'm on Instagram at Kelly Masters. Great. Well, Kelly, thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much. For this week's Core Spotlight segment, I'm joined by Amy Stevens, who will be talking about the Heritage Hills and Mesta Park neighborhoods. Runners come across those in the latter stages of the marathon after passing mile 23. Amy, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. We also have Carrie Watkins with us as well. We love these two neighborhoods. I mean, they're two of the prettiest on the course. People love them. Thanks for coming here to represent your great historic neighborhoods. Thank you so much. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about your neighborhoods? Yes, so Heritage Hills and Mesta Park are roughly between Northwest 23rd Street and Northwest 13th Street on the north and south borders. And then on the east and west side, we have Broadway and Classen. And so that kind of 
is just immediately north of downtown for folks who aren't familiar with the Oklahoma City area. And Heritage Hills is actually the oldest historic neighborhood in Oklahoma. So, you know, Oklahoma became a state in 1907. Some of our oldest homes, the first homes built in that neighborhood, were also built in that year of 1907. So it's a historic neighborhood full of a lot of history and tradition and um, glad to be part of such an important event like the Oklahoma City Memorial Marathon. And what's your involvement in the neighborhoods? My husband and I moved there in early 2005, and I pretty quickly became involved with what at that time was the Neighborhood Associates Board, and we had a newcomer welcoming committee, so it was a great way to meet all of the folks who were moving into the neighborhood for the first time. Um, Lots of kids. Yes, lots of kids, and that's really been a change that's happened in the last, you know, 17 years or so that we've been there. A lot of younger families have moved into that area, attracted to, you know, being close to downtown and a lot of the really cool things that are happening in Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. How did the neighborhoods embrace the race? What do they do to just make it come alive on race weekend? Well, I think in terms of the neighbors, you'll see a lot of porch parties and things happening. You know, a lot of the homes are configured with porches in the front or on the side. And so they just really lend themselves anyway to sort of gathering. And for the Oklahoma City Memorial Marathon, that's a really special time for a community. It's a, first of all, it's a beautiful time of year in Oklahoma. Springtime, trees are blooming, flowers are blooming. And Mesta Park and Heritage Hills have been both very involved with what's going on in our community. So I think you see a lot of impromptu sort of porch parties and really well-established gatherings to kind of support the runners and encourage them on throughout. So you are trustee at the memorial, you run the race, you're busy in the neighborhood, you're a mom. How do you do it all? (laughs) And you're working full-time. I mean, I drop a ball every now and again. I think we all do. I have a wonderfully supportive partner and my husband and great friends through our neighborhood and in our community who help with carpool and things like that that are just essential when you're raising young children. I mean, I love Oklahoma. I love this place. I love the memorial and the museum and the marathon and and everything it sort of stands for. And I've been running in this race for several years. And you've known Dr. Tom forever, he says. Oh, Dr. Tom Caniglione. I've enjoyed your podcast, and I did get to hear him speak a few weeks ago. He he was instrumental in helping me complete my first marathon, both mentally and physically. <laughs> <laughs> so what tips do you have for completing your first marathon? I think what other people have shared about, you know, trusting your training, and I think just that consistency in training, setting reasonable expectations for yourself and giving yourself some compassion and grace along the way. Right. Yeah. Do you have a favorite part of the course? I mean, is it passing through your neighborhood or do you have a a different favorite part? Well, I do love running through our neighborhoods. Usually my kids are with a sitter somewhere on the course in that area. So I kind of live for that moment when I get to Uh see them and they're holding a sign of encouragement and they want me to stop and give them a hug or high five and it's pretty awesome. I mean, there are so many great parts of the course. I love running through Crown Heights by our church. And this last year um, was my first time to run through Lake Hurston. What a wonderful addition. 
and this will be my first year really running through the northeast side of town yes. and I'm super excited that that is part of the course now so there's not a bad part of the course it's, it's a really well supported course so are you running the full half really I'm running the half this year that's great plan. that's yeah. a good distance how's your training going well, <laughs> oh, I always wish I could get more miles in. So, you know, not as strong as some years, but I think it comes back to that giving yourself grace, sure. you know. Are you an early morning runner? I am. If it doesn't get done in the morning, then it's not going to happen with carpools and after school activities and then just the fatigue of the day. Yep. So it has to happen around 530 or 6 in the morning. Yeah. You guys are so dedicated. <laughs> <laughs> it's my sanity, really. It is. Yeah. I mean, and when you've got young kids and then when you have teenagers, it's definitely, you know, a very big part of my sanity. That's for sure. So yeah. Kristen's running the fool with her daughter. Do you have any tips? I think how exciting that you get to run with your daughter. Yeah. Isn't that cool? I think it's amazing. I, I think what a special experience for the two of you. Not only running the race, which is really just a meaningful experience in itself, but all the hours training together right. that you must have with her uh -huh. as a young adult. And so it is fun to have a running buddy. And It is fun. Yeah. It's been fun to have just that kind of side-by-side -side time uninterrupted. You know, there's nothing that can take away our, you know, there's no distractions. And yes, we sometimes listen to things, but sometimes we just take our headphones out and chat or tell stories or make silly videos or just, you know, whatever. <laughs> Do you train by yourself? Well, right now, unfortunately, I am. I joined the Land Runners soon after I started running years ago. I found that to be a wonderfully supportive community and a great way to train as a beginning runner. And it really also afforded me some level of feeling of safety running mm -hmm. with a big group like that in dark hours and the opportunity to run in places in our community that I otherwise would not have run. So currently training solo, but I'm ready for my next door neighbor to move back in after her remodel so we can pick up where we left off. Now, does your husband run? He does. He does. So since we have younger kids, that means figuring out a running schedule where someone can still be home with them. Mm -hmm. We used to, when we were first training for our first you know, full marathons that we ran, we would train with Oklahoma City Land Runners and we would run their long runs on Saturday mornings. We would hire a babysitter to come over at like 5.30 or 6.30 in the morning to come and that would be like our date. Wow. We would, go <laughs> we would run, you know, 16, 18, 20 miles in preparation and really, the hardest part of that day was not the run. It was parenting the rest of the After. day. <laughs> two young children with two parents who run 20 miles and were exhausted. <laughs> Did you at least like go and have brunch or something after the long run before you tapped out on the babysitter? <laughs> Sometimes we would do brunch, but you know, you got a babysitter on the clock. You got to get back right. home. <laughs> Talk to us about uh, you're a new trustee at the memorial, and we're very excited to have you on board there and just what that means to you and the role of the memorial and museum and the marathon in the community and why it's so important. Gosh, you know, the Oklahoma City Memorial. Um, museum and marathon holds so much meaning to the city, to the state, and really to this country, I think. When I think back about where I was in 1995 and what I was doing on that day, of course, like many Oklahomans, I remember that vividly. And to consider sort of where we've come from that, 
where our city has come, where our people have come, and the important role I think this museum has in a really timely and relevant dialogue that's happening in our country right now. I think it's really special to be part of this place, part of what's happening here, part of this mission as an Oklahoman. I just can't think of, you know, anything more meaningful in our local community than the work that's being done here. That's great. How would you encourage other people to kind of get involved in the marathon? Well, I love what our group is doing around broadening sort of the scope of the marathon. So it's not just a marathon anymore. It's a whole weekend experience. Mm -hmm. So there's the children's race, there's the 5K, there's all the way up to a full marathon experience. And, you know, there's even the concert that will happen this year. I think that will provide even a broader appeal to folks who maybe haven't been as involved with the race before. All of these are important segues for us to have conversations around Mm -hmm. the memorial the museum and what meaning it holds. And I think that's super important, especially as we are, you know, teaching a younger generation who weren't here at that time in 1995 and may may not be familiar with that right. story. It, when I was just kind of reflecting over the last week, thinking about just some of the times that I've run with my daughter, I think that the marathon has been in our family, one of just kind of the biggest ways we've taught our kids about the bombing. And so, I mean, it is, it's just a segue to that conversation of it started with, you know, well, mom's running this race, but, you know, now here's the why behind it. And so I know that that's true for other families as well and other people. It is. And I love that the memorial grounds have Mm. been an accessible point for my kids as they were younger. And we talk about in children's language, something very sad and very bad happened here. And then something very special happened. And so that's been the sort of simplistic way that we've explained to them while they were younger than as they become older, they are better able to sort of take in the museum and all that's inside the museum and what that holds. Well, we're excited about race weekend and we're so glad you're a part of it. Thanks for being here yeah, today. Yeah, thanks Amy for joining us. Thank you for having me. And just like that, here we are with another episode in the books. As always, we appreciate you tuning in. Remember to subscribe to the show. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a five-star review. Have you picked up your training shirt yet? It's not too late. Just go to okcmarathon.com and hit the shop button to get yours today. The Oklahoma City Memorial Marathon runs the weekend of April 22nd through the 24th. Sign up today at okcmarathon.com before the prices increase on April 1st. If you're coming in from out of town, be sure and get here early. You've already heard that a lot of good things can happen at the Marathon Health and Fitness Expo, and there's no telling what you'll find. Don't miss it Friday and Saturday. And be sure and check out our website at okcmarathon.com for the latest schedule of great speakers and other fun things to do. Next week, we have a great show coming up for you. Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt joins us to talk about the Governor's Relay Challenge. Can you beat the Gov? You'll hear more from Wahoo running trainers Christy Thomas and Carly Daub. Catch episode five for their first appearance. Jorge Hernandez joins us to talk about the 5K race and the Latino community surrounding the course. Plus, we'll hear from Jason Bowden on Paycom's sponsorship of the half marathon race. This is your host, Kristen Fairs. Thanks for tuning in to the Run to Remember podcast, and we'll see you next week.